Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, how they got into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And of course, this is our first episode of the new series, Tarek. Season nine. Indeed. And uh, what have you been up to in the meantime? Just busy becoming a best-selling author. Best selling ebook only, of course. Of course, I believe that's only that's only metric I measure success by. <laughs> uh, uh, moving house, having a baby. It's been quite a hectic few months, actually. Yeah. What about yourself? What about you, anything exciting, me, Marco? Um, no. You've got a dog. <laughs> yeah, I had the dog before, and you might be able to hear the dog in the background. <laughs> so apologies if that's the case. But uh, for those of you who don't know, if you didn't tune into the last episode of the last season, Tarek's book uh, Welcome to Cooper is now out and doing very well in the Amazon charts so if you haven't had a chance to check that out do that would you say so Derek? I would absolutely agree with that I don't need bias but it's probably the best book I've read in a long long time oh there's the dog there's the dog there yeah thank you <laughs> um, anyway uh, on to this season and uh, we st- kick it off with a great guest yeah really really fun guest this week we're chatting with Alan Johnson who uh, he was an MP for 20 years. He was a Home Secretary and the Secretary of State for Health, for Labour, for Blair and Brown. And uh, after he left the Cabinet, he then wrote his first memoir called This Boy. It was an instant success and he followed up with two more more volumes of work. Uh, but very, uh, more excitingly for, for me anyway, uh, he'd now just launched his first novel, The Late Train to Gypsy Hill. Yeah, which, uh, as Alan tells us, is sort of inspired by the, the Litvinenko uh, uh, case and you know what might have been if if certain things had, had happened differently there so yeah. um yeah it's a, it's a it's a really well written thriller uh, yeah, which like a hitchcocky feel to yeah it, it does yeah. yeah yeah we discussed that sort of um uh, i think you compare it to the third man in the episode which is a good comparison to make i think with with is the it, type of story that, that it is. sounds like a very uh, intelligent maybe i'm misremembering <laughs> maybe that was alan himself but no it, it was a really fun it's a really fun chat that we had with alan um we talked to him about you know he, he has always wanted to be a writer and you know had ambitions to be a rock musician as well and we even managed to speak to him about being a, a, a contestant on the masked singer which I have to say is a show I've never watched, but we'll definitely check the episode out now on Alan Johnson's. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think you can actually see, likely see a clip on YouTube uh, yeah. of his final <laughs> performance. But uh, anyway, uh, we won't spoil the podcast too much. So we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our page one notebook. And if this is your first episode, uh, the notebook is a sort of a writer's aid because Tarek and I are both writers. Uh, divided into different sections to help you plan your novel. And we're currently going through a second print run, which of course has been delayed thanks to Brexit, COVID and various other things. But uh, it is coming, so we'll play the advert. You can check it out on the website and then we'll get straight into the interview. And I believe if you pre-order now, you get a little 10% discount? That is absolutely correct. But anyway, on with the podcast. That's my dog. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. 
So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. What I normally do is ask, did you always want to be a writer? But obviously you started out very differently. I think, am I right in saying you started as a postman and then obviously moved into politics? Shelf stacker at Tesco's. (laughs) Right, okay. I didn't want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. I have always wanted to be a writer. So, so, so I mean, well, I suppose the next question from that is, if if you har- harboured that ambition, what is it that 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 took you so long to to actually fulfil that as a as a dream? Uh, yeah, I w- wanted to be a writer. I mean, when uh, the Beatles' sixth single, "Paperback Writer," came out in 1966, I did actually want to be a paperback writer. <laughs> I was 15 at the time, and my book is dedicated to my English teacher, Peter Carlin, who is still alive. Uh, He came into my life when I was in the fourth form, what we'd now call year nine. Mm -hmm. And he saw my stupid stories about Inspector Andrews and a character called Mr. Midnight, loosely based on The Saint by Leslie Charteris. And he said, why don't you um, send them off for publication? And I... I thought that was an amazing thing to try and do, but he got an old copy of the Artists and Writers Yearbook, mm-hmm. which is published annually, still is, even in this internet age, yeah. with the address of every magazine and you know obscure magazine uh, in the country. And uh, so I sent them off, got the inevitable rejection slips. Mr. Carlin said, look, don't give up, Alan. Every writer gets rejection slips. You know, try again. And... Uh, you know, many years later, I tried again. And the great thing is Mr. Khan is still alive. He's 90, living down in Bath. So he's uh, he was too frail to come to the book launch, but he's there to mark my homework all these years later. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to be a rock musician and I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and you ended uh, up as a politician. I ended up as a politician. 
Hurl failure. <laughs> I mean, I, I did want to touch on on your time in politics. Obviously, you know, as as, as I mentioned before, we started recording. We had um, Alistair Campbell on as a guest before, and obviously, it it seems like a very all consuming thing um, to be involved in politics to that level and the level that you were at. Um, were you writing at the time as well? I know we'll we'll come to you writing your memoirs, but I mean, throughout that period, were you writing or were you just having to concentrate on the on the job, as it were? Yeah, I was writing the speeches. Which yeah, mm-hmm. servants kind of do a draft. So I had a speechwriter, guy called Simon Lancaster. But I would never leave it alone. I always wanted to move it around. But you know, sometimes you're making four speeches in a day. Mm-hmm. And you've got the red box to do and you've got all your constituency stuff as well because you're doing two jobs when you're a government minister. You're an MP as well. So really, I didn't write seriously after my fabulous Inspector Andrews and Mr Midnight stories. (laughs) I just wrote a few little stories for my kids as they were growing up, but that was the only time I used my imagination. Um, And so it wasn't until 2013 when this boy was published, well, two years before that, when I started to write that, when there was interest in an Alan Johnson book. But that was memoir. So that was, uh, you know, a feat of the memory rather than a feat of imagination. But it meant I could string a sentence together. You know, those won a lot of awards. But I was really keen to get to fiction because that was the rock face to climb. I mean, to me, you couldn't call yourself a writer or an author no matter how many prizes you'd got from Royal Society of Literature or whatever, if you hadn't developed plot and character, that to me was real writing because that's the writing I've read all my life, fiction. I've read fiction all my life, mm-hmm. love fiction. And um, and that was the big challenge. And there must have been quite a difference writing even the memoirs and the fiction compared to the scripts and the, uh, the speeches, etc. Because I'd imagine with the speeches, it's going through so many hands, there's so many people involved in it, whereas you're kind of, you are, it's largely just you writing it yourself and it's come, when it comes to the memoirs and, and the fiction. Yes, I don't think I could have written the memoirs if I was still a government minister. So once the electorate dispensed with our services in 2010, uh, I, was, I was an MP then, but all that time that ministerial life took up was suddenly free to do something else and that was the writing the memoirs. But you're right. You know, the, the the glory of it was, apart from speeches, you have to write articles for newspapers, mm-hmm. which generally are prepared for you by civil servants, but I used to change them around. And even after that had finished in 2010, if I was writing a piece, you know, as I'd been the education secretary and the health secretary, I was always being asked to comment on what was happening. But there'd always be a restriction. You know, the Daily Mirror wants 250 words. The Guardian, if you were lucky, want a thousand words. You could never expand. Mm. You always had to keep within those tough deadlines. Mm-hmm. So when it came to the memoirs, even before the fiction, the fact you had all that space to write in, which sometimes, you know, 80,000 words is daunting, isn't it? I mean, you, you've done it. You know, when people say to me, uh, I remember Steve Wright in the afternoon when I did this thing on Radio 2 with him. He said, what are you doing now after I stepped down from Parliament? I said, I'm writing. He said, yeah, but what are you doing? As if writing is not a proper job. Yeah. You're writing <laughs> something you polish off over a tea break. I said to him, you tried doing 80 <laughs> <laughs> So, um, So that, 
ability to expand was was really important and totally different to what I was used to in politics. But but did those restrictions that you had from the political writing and the, and the, the articles and stuff d- did that in some way help you with the discipline? Although you had the room to expand with memoir and and subsequently fiction, um, does it help? you in your approach in any way sort of the structure or planning or anything like that i don't think so no i think the only thing that helped me was reading so Mm. you know every book i read was an education as to when it came to to writing when you read really good books there was um a memoir uh, not very well known by a guy called paul bailey paul bailey called an immaculate mistake and Paul Bailey, who's quite a senior BBC person, um, his childhood memoir, it was called An Immaculate Mistake because he came along when his mum was 40, early 40s, and she always called him an immaculate mistake. Uh, and he described life in what was Bermondsey, southeast London, uh, as a child. And I thought he did it so beautifully and so evocatively. In a sense, that was my you know, my uh, uh, inspiration uh, when it came to, to writing this boy. But I don't think I learned anything from being a government minister. A bit of it's come in handy for the thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't been a home secretary and all that, but but not a lot of it. I could have written it if I'd never been home secretary, frankly. Well, I mean, I, we'll, we'll definitely chat about, about the fiction uh, shortly, but I wanted to first chat about this boy and the, the other memoirs that, that you wrote. And, and what was it that, that made you want to to write them in in the first place? Was it someone that came to you and said and asked you to do it, or was it something you kind of wanted to put out on paper yourself? Well, I was very lucky in that you know, unlike most writers, uh, uh, publishers were coming to me keen to get a book, and I got, got myself an agent, American guy called Andrew Kidd. And Andrew said to me, you know, that most of the requests were about my political life, you know, the traditional political memoirs, which I hate, incidentally. I mean, they bore me solid. Uh, they're always about, you know, going back to refight old battles that everyone's forgotten about. Um, and Andrew said to me, why don't you just write about your childhood? Don't write anything about your political life. Just write about your childhood. He knew, you know, I had rather an interesting childhood. And... Um, and that put the idea into my mind. So, you know, the first one finishes when I'm 18. You know, not only am I nowhere near political life, you know, I'd left school, failed uh, in two rock bands, but had made a record when I was 16 <laughs> and um, was married with two kids and uh, 18. And that was the, that, that, you know, that was the end of this boy. And it was supposed to be a one-off, but then people... It, sold very well and he's still selling very well and people said well how did you get from there to there so then the idea for please mr postman Mm -hmm. and then to finish it off what is as close to being a political memoir i I suppose of the trilogy which is the long and winding road my life into politics but even there one of the reviewers complained that i only spent 40 pages on my 11 uh, 11 years as a government minister it's deliberate. I mean, to me, that's the least interesting bit. The most, the most interesting bit of the people I work with, the government car service drivers and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the kind of, the, I suppose, demystifying some of the stuff around politics as well, uh, rather than the various positions I had. So 40 pages, it 
it ends just as I'm becoming Home Secretary, basically because I can't write anything about when I was Home Secretary that that doesn't have to pass through yeah. civil service and what because. And anyway, you know, that's the kind of stuff I can't even talk to my wife about, the things I knew about there. I certainly can't write about them. I signed the Official Secrets Act when I was a postman, by the way, because <laughs> post office then was um, was part of the civil service up until 1969. So when I became a minister and they said, you have to sign the Official Secrets Act, I said, I already have. <laughs> <laughs> so, Obviously, Alan, you can, you can tell us here. We'll just cut it out. It won't be <laughs> free to talk, that's totally fine. <laughs> Bad things, very bad people. <laughs> Three genius things that uh, MI5 that I was once responsible for uh, did to catch bad people were quite astounding. I wish I could put them in. I might weave them into a plot somewhere. Yeah, I would have yeah, thought that. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a nice segue into uh, the, the late train to Gypsy Hill, which is, is the novel. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about what the novel's about, first of all? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'll give the, the genesis of it was the Litvinenko case. I was in the cabinet as an education secretary, so nowhere near home office or, you know, uh, defence department or whatever. Just watching it as part of, like everybody else, it was an incredible thing to have happened. But I did wonder, because it was said that Litvinenko was served this tea in a London hotel by a waitress, I did wonder what if the waitress had mixed up the order and given the wrong tea to the would-be poisoner so that, in effect, they poisoned themselves. And that idea was floating around a lot um, over a number of years. And at the same time, this will make me sound like a real old fogey. You guys are much younger. This won't have been astounding to you, but I took the train in every morning from Gypsy Hill, where I lived in Crystal Palace, uh, when I was an MP, to Victoria, walked down Victoria Street to the House of Commons. And on the train in the morning, I became, I suddenly noticed this phenomenon to me of women doing their full makeup on the train in front of everybody else. I don't remember that when I was a kid and I used to travel around on the underground a lot, you know. Um, it seemed to me something that had developed. And the fact that First of all, the process, which looked so convoluted of pots and brushes and 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 the fact they were totally in their own world, as if they were still in their, you know, boudoir, as they would call it in a Regency novel. Uh, I just was fascinated by that. And the two things went together because the story is, uh, you know, a waitress serves the wrong coffee and the would-be poisoner becomes the poisoned, is a Russian uh, very linked in with organised crime, and his colleagues, his Russian colleagues, don't appreciate that how easy that mistake was to make. They want to talk to this waitress, and in the end, she's on a train, late train to Gypsy Hill, and Gary Nelson, who's my hero, who's a kind of just a working class guy from Aylesbury uh, in Buckinghamshire, moved to London seeking excitement and adventure. All he found was monotony in a dull job in Covent Garden, in accounts payable. And he's too shy. He's always noticed this girl doing her makeup on the train, too shy to talk to her. Sees her one night, got a seat next to her, empty. He sits next to her and she shows him the compact mirror that she's doing her makeup in, but she's scored on it in mascara. Help me. And then Gary gets all the excitement and adventure he could possibly want because the Russians are on the train 
uh, looking to uh, to snatch her, and he finds a way to to escape them. But then, not only are those Russians from Krobni Bratia, uh, which means blood brothers in in English, organised crime. The FSB, successors to the KGB, are quite keen to talk to her as well. And the Metropolitan Police are quite keen to talk to her. And there's a bent copper there who's working for uh, for Krodmi Bratia. But, you know, people have asked me at the book festivals I've done, oh, are you saying there's police corruption? I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that there might be the odd copper that that uh, is open to inducements, as this copper was. Uh, so there's a bent copper in there as well. So all human life is there. So I it's mean, a that, proper kind of Hitchcock, kind of, kind of Hitchcock feel to, isn't it? Like, that kind of great, man gets drawn up in a conspiracy, you know, above his yeah. level, etc. Bit of that. It's been two reviews: the Irish News and uh, the Irish Times this morning, and another one. I think it was in the the Sun, the current Bun, for goodness sake, who said it uh, likened it to the Thirty Nine Steps. Well, that'll do for me. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's, that's exactly came to mind as well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean you've got a lot of strands to pull together there are you are you someone even with your memoirs uh, and your fiction do you do you sort of sit down and plan it out beforehand or do you have the idea and just sort of start writing and see where it goes well i was fascinated by that book you told me about marco where you could uh, that you're going to kindly send me i might use that for characters and all that i kind of scroll down in the back of a uh you know pucker pad the main characters so that I remember as I go through and I had an idea I mean I've only written the one I'm not an expert actually one and a half because it's a two book deal and I'm halfway through the second one but I understand the need to to keep it all together and to remember what you've said but not much more the twists and turns happen and you suddenly you're writing something and you you think no actually I want to go off in this direction and the beauty about fiction is of course you can although i don't know how you know the great writers of uh, the 19th century like dickens and wilkie collins who serialized it you know they've already got it out in print they can't change anything yeah. no exactly yeah i can go back and change it um so it's a bit more difficult uh, for them i guess but no i mean you talk to loads of writers you you, you tell me uh, is there a writer that plots it all out from beginning to end has all the characters there and then just puts it on paper? Some people do, for sure. Some folk, I mean, we've, there seems to be a proper variety of, of, of approaches. Some people, like yourself, can, don't they like to know exactly where it's going. But some people like to plot it down to the last minute. We chatted to one guy who who kind of would do a framework of all the dialogue and then fill in the bits around it. And you know, some of those, the strangest methods, but obviously works for some people. But it's, um, yeah, no one, it's... It, it, it's very interesting. It's, it's difficult to find people who have exactly the same sort sort of process. Everyone seems to bring their own little idiosyncrasies to it. Yeah, I, I mean, I've got a rough idea of where it's going to go, but then it kind of changes. Sometimes. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. What, what, what some people say as well is that you know they don't want to plan it out in that much detail because it kind of takes the enjoyment of the story yeah. away from it. If if you have to. You know, if you plan out every single scene and all that sort of stuff, it, yeah. it takes the spontaneity away. As you say, that can your characters are, can go off in a completely different direction than, than you thought they might at the start. So um, that's part of the fun of writing, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I do have a lot of fun in writing. Let me tell you, it's more fun than politics. <laughs> and does that mean that your your method of writing is that lead to a lot of drafts, a lot of redrafts as you go back and tweak things from the start to fit the end, etc.? 
Yeah, but that was the same with the memoirs. You know, I, I someone said, I forget who, that no one's a writer, they're a, a rewriter. And, you know, that rewriting process is really, really important. I guess my books have all gone through, like the four I wrote even before this, might have gone through four or five different drafts. I can't read read it without finding a different way of expressing it. Even now it's published, too late now. <laughs> I could have said this a different way. So in a sense, you can get carried away with it and you can overdo it. Yeah. I think that redrafting thing. So I write handwrite first of all, because that seems to work for me from the brain to the hand. But then when I put it onto the computer, it's it's uh, first it's redrafted there, mm-hmm. then it's redrafted on there. And then when I look back through it, it's redrafted again, and then it'll be redrafted. And then the editor, you know, when it's being edited, they'll get hold of it. Um, so, yeah, I think you, you're always polishing and planing. It's like a carpenter, isn't it? And yeah. yeah. But uh, as, you, as you alluded to there, I think there is a, you know, it can be difficult sometimes. You can be too close to it and you can always think you want to keep polishing it and keep polishing it. And there does come yeah. a time when you have to sort of hand it off. And I suppose that's the editor's role in a way to say, yeah, I suppose this doesn't. Yeah. yeah. It comes too much of an obsession of, you know, mm-hmm. effect. I mean, I'm not after the Nobel prize for bloody literature. <laughs> every time you, you want it to be as taught as well. I mean, this issue about, I read a lot of Maigret. George Simon is, is probably the detective books I've read the most. And golly, he was good at kind of boiling it all down and, you know, not having too much superfluous stuff in there, which is always a temptation. And the, and the handwriting, is that, is that a nice way to kind of slow things down as you're writing it? To I think it's quite easy when you're typing to kind of blast through that, especially the first draft, to kind of like just throw it down. But I imagine when you're handwriting it, it's a lot more slower. You've got more time for thoughts to percolate as you're writing it. Well, I'm not all that quick on the on the keyboard. <laughs> not because, you know, all of this new technology all happened while I was a minister and there were other people to draft things for me. And I had, you know, personal assistants and private secretaries and all that. So I didn't do a lot on the keyboard. Um, so I'm not all that quick on it anyway. So actually, I'm probably faster handwriting. Just, <laughs> you know, the crossing stuff out and thinking again and all that, it's it just a process that seems to connect my hand, uh, you know, with the pen in my hand to my brain more than the keys. Well, I think I can. I mean, I might gradually just move on to, uh, you know, given that I'm going to be writing, whether anyone publishes it or not, is another thing I'm going to be writing. I might actually have a go at just doing it on a keyboard because it is quicker when you've got mm-hmm. a dead you know. Yeah. And and do you, you know, you've written the memoirs and you've written the fiction. You said at the start that you thought um, you're not a real writer until you've written fiction. Did you Did you find each process equally enjoyable or was it the fiction that you really enjoyed the most? Fiction I enjoyed the most. I've had a ball with the fiction, but I had no deadline on this one because my publisher, Trance World, my agent showed them the first three chapters and they said, oh, can you set it in the 50s? It seems too kind of old fashioned. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I can't. And uh, so my agent said, well, just just finish it and, and we'll see what other publishers are interested. And in the end, Trance World were interested, but Wildfire got in first. And for Trance World, I mean, they've got Dan Brown, they've got Lee Child, you know, they've got Paula Hawkins, they've got all these 
writers I'd have been low down, probably, you know, they're, they're great publishers and they published my first four books. So I've still got a good relationship with them. But Wildfire were kind of young and hungry and mm-hmm. it, they just blew me away with their enthusiasm uh, for the book. Um, so, so in the end, there was a, I was fortunate there was a bit of a bit of an auction, but I had time to finish it, and I had COVID, which you know terribly has been a terrible thing for many people. It was a good thing for me, sense of concentrating on it for that intensive period. Yeah, and what was it like working with an editor and an agent? You know, doing handing in drafts, getting notes back from them, and was was it similar at all to? I suppose it was almost the other way around. You know, you were the one giving notes to your speeches, but now you were getting notes on your work. Yeah. We we didn't really do it that way. It was finished. Wildfire took it on as the, you know, the transcript that was sent to all the publishers by my agent. And then the editing process was very simple. There was some really good suggestions and, you know, really, as always with these guys, really insightful uh and um and it didn't take long with the memoirs it took much longer because there were all kinds of legal checks on it and Mm. didn't seem to happen with this the lawyers were very interested to crawl all over the memoirs and uh uh no one was because this is fiction i suppose um they weren't too there wasn't too much of that in the process so it was an quite an easy i've never done a book not even this second book where i hand the drafts in and then they hand them back like my home homework to Mr. Cole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they just, you know, at the end of this now, which I should have handed it in, but it'll be about the end of the year. They'll come back with their suggestions in one go. And that's much more manageable. Yeah. And and obviously you said you're working on, on the next book, which presumably you do have a deadline for. So is that, have you found that more difficult working yeah. to that deadline? Yeah. Yes, I wish I had longer and I could relax because suddenly, so it was two book deal done last uh, October, November. Second book had to have the same detective. That was the uh, proviso. Mm -hmm. And the second book was to be completed by September. Um, I had the idea for it straight away, started writing it before Christmas and thought, oh, you know, this will be a Mm dog. Getting 80,000 words done in that <laughs> is not a total. <laughs> Even with lockdown two and all that, um, you know, I find what am I? I'm at about 40,000. And I've just broken that news to my, to the guy, uh, Alec, the, the great guy, Alex Clark, who's head of wildfire. And he didn't fall to the floor sobbing. So I said, <laughs> that's the end of the year, I hope. But that's going to be tough as well because I'm now out promoting the book. I've just yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. back from a little tour, mini tour. Um, so that's harder. You know, uh, I, I've probably got to discipline myself not to do so many redrafts that we were talking about earlier. And is the, is the, um, the stress with writing to a deadline when it comes to fiction, is that kind of a, is it a, is it a writer's block issue? Is it a, just a find the time? Is it just the, the fact that you didn't have much time to write it? You know, is there, because I imagine writer's block is something you didn't really have to worry about when it came to the memoir stuff, but it's something that you might have had to think about here. I didn't have to worry about it too much then, no. Um, and I was doing the other job for at least two of them, uh, so still an MP. No, it's just that with fiction is different, isn't it? Because of all those different options you can have, because of the, I've just introduced a new character into my the book I'm writing now, and I'm really excited about it. Um, 
you know, it seems to me it's a whole new kind of bit of energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't think of this earlier on, and I thought, oh, this will be a good character. Um, so, so no, it's just the process of thinking it through. I mean, I do about four or five hours a day, start about 7.30. Don't set myself any, you know, I'm not, um, uh, I'm not Trollope, you know, used to, mm-hmm. whatever it was, a thousand words every half hour. Oh, God, that'd be, uh, <laughs> I start, I'm, by the time I'm kind of exhausted about half past 12 and nothing's kind of coming anymore, that's the time to, to go away. So there's no set pace. Um, and I've enjoyed every minute. There was no writer's block, Tariq, you were talking about. I've not had a writer's block. Oh, no, that's good. Simply that process of thinking it all through and mm-hmm. then getting it right and then doing it. I mean, I think I've done bloody well to do 40,000 words by now, actually, in, in what, um, not far off a year, 10 months. Uh, but at that rate, you know, it's going to be quite a long time before it's finished. But I think the publishers generally you know, take this into account. I don't think, you know, I, I was talking to a guy at one of my book launches that promised to produce a book for Transworld, who was my publisher, uh, years ago. It's a guy called Robert uh, Crampton, who writes a column for The Times, Saturday Times. And he's a mate of mine because he comes from Hull. He was at the book launch and my uh, Transworld approached him while he was there. said, what about that book? <laughs> Ten years ago, he was <laughs> over his deadline, and I thought, "Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> I suppose yeah. they want it done right." You know, there, there's no point in putting out a book that's not properly finished and stuff. It looks bad for them as well, so they want they want the book to be as best the best it can be. I suppose, don't they? Yeah, but there again, I know you know Wildfire are telling their marketing team, is, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a flip side, isn't it? Yeah, that's a bit the machine at work. America and Australia and New Zealand as well. They got you know it's, it's Hachette, who is the second biggest international publishers to Penguin Random House. So I understand that they've got their mark and they market very well. They use social media very well. And if I'm buggering it up by not having the product, you know, to use that terrible term about a work of art, as I would call it, rather ponsily. Um, then, you know, I've got to try my best. It's not for what As you say, I think they, they must build a bit of that into their into their schedules. Yeah, they must do. Um, but so so is, is this you, for good now, this is you, you want to, are you going to keep producing more fiction? Yeah, I enjoy everything about it. I enjoy everything about it. There's nothing I enjoy. The thing I enjoy most as well is going to book festivals mm. afterwards. I mean, there's nothing like that in politics. Yeah. My publishers tell me, you know, there are writers who, you know, by their nature, I suppose, are very isolated and quite loners and don't like dealing with with book festivals and people and all that. Uh, I can understand that. Me, I mean, you know, try and shut me up. I, <laughs> I love all that side of it. To go to, because there's nothing like that in politics now. There's no public meetings now in politics. And if there were, you'd have a large group of people there who were quite hostile to you. Yeah, right? I was going to say it would be a, a slightly different crowd. <laughs> slightly different crowd, whereas... Here, question time type situation. Yeah, yeah, whereas with books, you know, they're all coming along because they quite like your stuff. Yeah. The more you've had and, published. And is the future fiction stuff, you you know, are you going to keep writing with the same the same characters? and Or are you, would you, are you like, no, trying I mean, to experiment and branch out? Well, I say I don't want to, but, you know, when wildfire make you the offers, they make you. Yeah, yeah. yeah go with it well christ okay um i like detective 
I love thrillers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there is a certain snobbery about these things, isn't there? But yeah. I, I don't think a thriller has yet won the Man Booker Prize, for instance. Um, and I've read plenty of plenty of thrillers that that would, to, to mm. me, is great literature. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I've got this idea for historical fiction. Every time I mention it to my agent, her it was a wonderful woman, Claire Alexander. Her eyes glaze over. <laughs> I mentioned it to uh, Penguin Random House. Their eyes glazed over. <laughs> but I think it's a great idea, and and I want to get round to that at some stage. Uh, but if this one's successful, like the second one, and I get another book offer. For, mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely a market for. So, is it a, a historical thriller? Is that what it would be? It'd be a thriller. And... Yeah, thriller, but it's historical fiction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not quite Hilary Mantel, but there's a there's an area called the Isle of Axon, right, which you'd have never heard of, and don't apologise because no one has. Uh, but it's a vast land with this amazing history of the guy who drained it all. Uh, in the 17th century and the kind of things that went on here it was a Dutchman who brought 600 Dutch workers over their names are all over the Isle of Axon which is just where I live and I'm just amazed that no one's told his story he changed the course of the river Don for Christ's sake in 1627 I mean talk about a feat of engineering the run up to the civil war Charles I brought him out it was his land the Isle of Axon Mm. so you've got that element as well Cromwell and all that uh but it will take a lot of research so i know when i'm sitting down to do that you know i've got at least a year's heavy reading before i even start mm-hmm. but it's still there as an idea no i like that i'd be, I'd be i'd definitely read that alan yeah yeah well you're the only people whose eyes haven't glazed over <laughs> <laughs> you use my inspiration <laughs> and uh, I, I need to ask uh, before the end um, <laughs> have, you, have you got any other plans to appear on, on something like The Masked Singer again? Well, well they'd have me back again, yeah. I thought <laughs> it's treated. I was beaten by a tree that turned out to be That was a wonderful experience because I always wanted to be a you know, rock yeah. star. Uh-huh. But, um, and I haven't given up yet, but. Uh, that because you were in that costume, uh, you know, you had no qualms about singing out. Nobody knew who you were. It was a new program, and although I got, I was the second one turfed off. I got because they just started to get interested. The media. I had all these interviews. It was as if I won it. You know, I got a lot of publicity. <laughs> um, and it was just great fun to do. But you know, you film it all in September, and it's shown in January, and I had. And you have to practice and rehearse six songs right? in case you get through to the final. Mm-hmm. And the worst one walked like a bloody Egyptian, which was their <laughs> outfit. Difficult to sing, by the way. And not that I'm a great singer. Um, that was the worst one. I had all these great ones to come. Uh, <laughs> use when I'm on the second time now. <laughs> Excellent. So do, you, so do you pick the songs or do they say these are the songs that you're going to sing? Well, they give you a kind of list and then you can suggest a few and they say, a bit like the civil service, mm, that's very interesting. <laughs> and then they just you know, give you the one they wanted you to have. But to a certain extent, you do pick your songs. Yeah, which is why it's... And you work with these musicians, these fabulously talented musicians. As I said, because you've got it already, all six of them, and then you fall at the first fence, as I did. Yeah, it, it must have been a... How did the opportunity come to you? Uh, you know, as as former 
Home Secretary, it doesn't strike you. you we must get him on the show, kind of a thing. <laughs> well, I don't know. My agent, I've got a media agent and a literary agent. My media agent said, uh, I want you to do this bizarre program that started in South Korea and kind of very popular in America. <laughs> yeah. Where uh, Donny Osmond won it, by the way, uh, for their first series. And I took a few a look at a few of the pictures from the uh, uh, from the American one, and I thought, oh, that really does look like fun. So when people were saying, "Why do it?" I would say, well, "Why not?" You know? No, totally. I mean, yeah, absolutely, an absolute brilliant laugh. Yeah, it'd be great fun. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a real hoot. <laughs> Theresa May on next season? Then you think? So. Yeah. Poor Theresa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't see her being on the Masked Singer. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> what was the last book that you read? The Good Patient by Damon Golgut, South African writer. Re- highly recommended. You know, every oh, okay. so you read a book that is just so amazing, you want to recommend it to everyone. It happened to me with Remains of the Day by Ishiguru years ago, Stoner by John Williams, uh, and now this, The Good Patient, Damon Galgar. Brilliant. Oh, nice. Nice one. And uh, what about the last film that you watched? The last film that I watched, which was a contemporary film, uh, as opposed to all the stuff I've been watching on uh, on telly through lockdown, uh, uh, last cinema experience. Uh, I think it was um, what was it? The one about Wall Street, The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh yeah, oh yeah, a while ago, quite a while ago. That was my last cinema experience. But I've been shut for a long time. So, uh, and, and what about a TV show that you last watched or are watching? Uh, I love The Sopranos. We rewatched all of that. Uh, a lot of the Danish Scandi noir. Uh, I've been watching that series, uh, The Terror, about the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was excellent. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And the North oh, Sea, yeah. uh, not the North Sea, the North um, Waters, is it? North oh, the Colin Farrell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was written by a guy from Hull, where I live, and where oh, the, nice. which was my constituency, and uh, and looks like a brilliant. I haven't watched it yet, but that's my next one to uh, watch. Oh, on the Sopranos as well. There's the Sopranos film coming out, I think, next month. Yeah, yeah. I, that one's a masterclass, wasn't Looking it? Looking forward yeah. to that. Yeah, no, it looks excellent. Line of, Duty, Line of Duty, of course, which everyone watched. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. yeah. Uh, brilliant. Well, the, the very, very last thing we do is a super quick fire, either or, and I will say there's no right answers apart from one. So the first one is the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. The Beatles. <laughs> uh, Night Owl or Early Bird. Early bird, former postman. <laughs> of course. Uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Fancy restaurant. Uh, TV or cinema? TV or? Cinema. Uh, TV. And last one, real book or ebook? Oh, real book. Ugh, I, knew, I knew I wasn't going to get that was the That was the one which actually... <laughs> Matters uh, to me. Tarek's a big ebook advocate. So, yeah. uh, I, knew I, was, I knew I wasn't going to get an ebook from you. That's yeah, well, they, you know, the sales of ebooks of, and Kindles has, has peaked now, which is fine. And people read books and ebooks, don't they? So, uh, but I think, uh, no, it's the actual solid book in my hand. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. Fair, like enough. Good fair enough. Fair enough. 
So another guest, another excellent guest, and another one who writes who writes longhand. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, we've had a few guests that, that do that, and uh, I mean, in Alan's case, it sounds like it's more out of habit than any sort of drafting, you know, purposeful drafting yeah. technique. But um, I can see, you know, from what he was saying and what, from what other guests have said in the past that you get a natural redrafting as you transfer that to the computer. You'll you'll automatically go through that drafting process, and that maybe in lets you have a cleaner draft at the end of all. Yeah, it's funny. I think what's always put me off wanting to handwrite stuff is that it seems to me that it would be a lot slower to write that first draft, but I think you would make up for that time probably in the second or third draft because as you say, you're almost editing it as mm-hmm. you type it. So so you'd almost, I think the improvements would be much more noticeable mm-hmm. doing that. But for me, I just can't get past that. The length of, I'm such a slow handwriter. Also, I'm not sure I'll be able to read it back. You know, well, for for me, what it, I, I, I'm so conscious that I'm going to change stuff mm. that I'm always hesitant to actually start even writing longhand. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. you're sort of you've got this idea and you start writing it and immediately cross it out and then yeah, you it's want so to revise it. Whereas to like it's easier just to type stuff out and then you can yeah, cut yeah. and paste it on yeah. the screens. But you know, everyone's got their own their own technique and it obviously works for him. Although, as he says, he might he might move on to just try to do it on the computer no, it's, it's, yeah it's, it's something which I, well, maybe I'll give it a try one day but yeah I, I, can't, I can't see myself doing it I just I also just not a very good handwriting it's <laughs> dreadful handwriting I will not be able to read it again <laughs> when I come to type up <laughs> uh, well that, so you have to write the book twice essentially <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting as well what he was saying about being on the Steve Wright show and being asked what are you doing now and when he said writing there was the automatic response of what are you really doing yeah. as if writing isn't it a real thing yeah it's definitely yeah. it's one of these careers that's definitely viewed by people as in yeah writing's not proper job or so like yeah, a you can do that little thing you do in the yeah, yeah exactly in yeah. the evening uh-huh. you write your little books you can do that after, yeah. after dinner you know, but yeah it's which is it's just funny because you would never say that to someone like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling you know you can imagine yeah. being like yeah what do you actually do it's like oh I actually write books yeah it's it's, it's a funny um, it's a funny way it's viewed by people I think and actually, I think sometimes, if unless you are a Stephen King or or Neil Gaiman or something, mm-hmm. there's you know if if it is something that you're doing, if you're starting out in writing, and you do have another job at the time, then I think you can be hesitant to say that you write because yes, you're you have that imposter syndrome sort of writ large at that point because you've not been published, no one's given it to you, so. It's sort of something you do want to try and keep to yourself yeah. a lot of the time. But anyway, thanks very much, Alan, for taking the time to come on to the podcast. And as we said at the start, you can pick up the late train to Gypsy Hill now. So if you're if it sounded good to you, go and grab it from your local bookshop. Um, next week, we have another great guest, though. The hits keep on coming, Marco. Next week, they we're do. chatting with Stuart Turton, who uh, you may know from his award-winning uh, smash first novel uh, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle which is a kind of sci-fi twist on an Agatha Christie kind of mm-hmm. locked room mystery novel really uh, really exciting book and his second one which is um, more recently out The Devil in the Dark Water which is a kind of historical Sherlock Holmesy um, story set in a, on, a, on a ship and again is is very different in a lot of ways but equally compelling really really yeah, great yeah I mean the most, I mean, Stuart was a great guy, really funny and mm. really interesting to speak to. But yeah. also, what um, 
I took from the conversation was that you know he was very determined when he got his agent that and his publisher that he would be writing different books every mm-hmm. time. He yeah. didn't want to be pigeonholed in one sort of genre or category and say, right, this is it, this is what you're writing for the rest of time kind of a thing, yeah. which is quite a brave move to 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 make. Totally, uh, especially from your stage. first novel. Yeah, yeah as you say, you know, you're kind of new, you're, you're like an unknown and, uh, and uh, a lot of people, you would sign anything and agree to anything just to get your book out there. So it's a, it's a bold move to say, no, I'm... I'm going to say no to that because I want to have more kind of control. So yeah, which, and it's paid off for them though because they're both fantastic oh, yeah. books and they're both very different and that is, it's great to see. Yeah, and they've both been massive hits. Although mm. I think, you know, as Stuart says, his books can be Marmite books because, you know, they do go in places, in directions that people, you know, if you're picking, wanting an Agatha Christie book and it suddenly has this element to it, then yeah. you might be put off by that. But other people love them and I, I'm, I'm in, definitely in that camp. Um, I particularly love The Devil in the Dark Water. But yes, me too. That was my, that was my favourite. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, that one. Yeah. But um, we'll, we'll speak more about it next week. So thanks very much for listening to this episode. Before we go, if you enjoyed the episode, it really helps us if you can take a couple of seconds to give us a review or rating on your podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, because that helps us climb the charts and that helps us to continue to get great guests. And of course, if anybody wants to get in touch, they can always drop us a tweet, which is at right underscore gear or an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later. 